This episode is brought to you by Indie Insights. Indie Insights is our bi-weekly newsletter and love note to the film industry, movies, and the creatives that make them, not to mention you, our esteemed listeners. Inside, you'll find curated industry trends, articles, exclusive commentary, and underappreciated films from filmmakers like yourselves worldwide. And the best part is that it's completely free. So sign up today at www.bonsai.film forward slash subscribe. It takes just a few seconds. And once you sign up, you'll get our next newsletter on Friday morning. It's that simple. Go to www.bonsai.film forward slash subscribe to get Indie Insights, our bi-weekly newsletter, and join a network of film creatives just like yourself. That's www.bonsai.film forward slash subscribe to get Indie Insights for free. Listening to Make It, a podcast by Bonsai Creative that helps creatives in film get where they're going faster by sharing the advice, knowledge, and insights of professional creatives across the film industry. I'm your host, Chris Barkley. My name is Linda Nelson, and I'm the CEO and co-founder of Indie Rights. Uh, maybe you've seen our YouTube channel, Indie Rights Movies for Free. That might be one way you might know us. Or maybe you have a friend whose films we're distributing. I'm also a filmmaker, and I'm really happy to be here to talk to you today. Linda J. Nelson, welcome to the Make It Podcast. Thanks. Glad to be here. Well, Linda, my day just got better. Uh, to have you on this podcast to talk everything from indie distribution, indie filmmaking, the path to get there, the work ethic it takes, I think it's going to be a fan favorite, an audience favorite, since this audience loves to learn some of the tools and tactics of people who have been doing it for a while and have been successful at it. And I also appreciate that you're coming from a unique background in this. You're someone who's a math and, and psych and art major in college and, you know, made her way from northern New York, you know, Water Valley, New York, you know, to L.A. So so this is going to be a fun, fun journey today. I would love if you don't mind, I would love to just start, though. And we'll jump around because that's what we do on the Make It podcast. Okay. But I would okay. love to start with the story of how your film Shifted became the first indie film to be downloadable from Amazon and the process and work it took to make that movie. Wow. Do you want to hear the whole backstory? Absolutely. <laughs> okay. So, well, what happened with me is that I grew up in a teeny, teeny, tiny town of 10,000 people in upstate New York. I knew from the time I was about 10 or 12 years old that I wanted to get out of there. I just knew it. I don't know why, but I just felt I 
and more than this. Right. It was a little tiny factory town. Right. I was a math major because math was the only thing I was good at. I had lousy SAT scores. I like two in the two hundreds, but my math score was perfect on the SATs. So I got offered a scholarship as long as I was willing to major in mathematics, which I did. And so I majored in mathematics in college, and but I minored in art and psych because that was my interest, you know, that I was more interested in that. And that wound up serving me well. But when I got out of school, I knew that, you know, I wanted to be successful at something. And I didn't have the confidence then in trying to make some kind of living with art. I just didn't have any kind of artistic confidence and I didn't want to be poor and I didn't want to live in this little town anymore. So I decided to use my math skills. And initially I was going to go work for IBM. I got an offer from all the big eight accounting firms and I wound up going to work for a regional bank, which where I was the very first female in their management training mm. program. Okay. And there previous to me, there were no women bankers. Okay. And so that was my first kind of introduction to uh, being a fish out of water, so to speak, and, and being a woman in a man's world. And that led me, and I'll try to get through some of this quickly. That led me into international banking and I was fortunate enough to work for Citicorp and then later for a Saudi investment bank and live in places like Saudi Arabia and London uh, in investment banking. But by the time I was in my 30s, I, I, I really felt like I wasn't getting any kind of fulfillment out of it. And also, I had gotten married. I had a, a child. I had a daughter born in London. And... I wanted her to be educated in the United States. So uh, we decided to move back to the United States. And when we came back here, I wound up getting involved rather than in banking. I decided to try something else. And so I got involved with a real estate developer. And I had gotten a lot of like real estate experience in the investment banking because we worked with people that were developing big projects in Saudi Arabia and, and housing developments and factories and, and buildings. So this uh, partner that I acquired in the United States was a real estate uh, guy and he had decided that he was interested in building uh, commercial entertainment centers like CityWalk. CityWalk was yeah. new and CityWalk was this one of the first urban entertainment complexes. And so we developed this whole scheme of urban entertainment complexes that were anchored with large format theaters, IMAX theaters, okay? Because previous to that, IMAX theaters were only in science museums. And our idea was we're gonna, we're gonna put these theaters in big, huge shopping malls and make you know, and, and, and that's going to change the way movies are seen. Yep. Right. You know, so, but it started out purely, I was in it for the real estate experience. So we had a project at Mall of America, one on 42nd street, 
in New York in Times Square, one in London, one in uh, Montreal, and one uh, in LA. And so when we were about to start construction, we realized that we needed some big, splashy movie to premiere these theaters with. So we put our heads together and we decided, okay, we, we need something really commercial, you know, to put in these theaters. And we had an opportunity to do a concert film with NSYNC, who were the biggest band in the world at Absolutely. that time. It was 2000. They were enormous. Everywhere you turned was NSYNC globally. They were just huge. And so we were able to talk them into letting us do an IMAX concert film. So we went on tour with them. Michael Madison, my now partner for 23 years, was hired uh, by my company to work on that project with me. And we got everything ready to make that movie. Uh, all, everything was in place. And uh, we actually went on tour and shot that film. Right as the film was finished, my real estate partner, who was from Newport Beach, got a brain oh tumor. And his whole company folded. Everything. He had a huge real estate empire. And the whole thing just was shut down. So here we are, Michael and I, we all, all that's left because the construction was halted on all of those projects. Here we are, we made this gorgeous movie and we loved doing it. Now, the thing with the move, with that movie was that we had $5 million to make this movie, right? And we hired the best. John Bailey, very famous yes. director, was our DP. Christian Wagner, who has edited all of uh, the Fast and Furious movies, was a friend of mine and edited it. It, it was gorgeous, you know? So, so here we have this movie and we think, wow, this was, this was really great. We loved it, but we'd like to get more involved in making movies. So we decided right then and there, that was the turning point where I decided I don't wanna build buildings i want to make movies and that was that that was how that happened now where we get to shifted what happened was that we had a contract with nsync to do that movie but we never thought we would really have a profit from that movie because there were there were no theaters only museums you know so we that was not going to be the profitable part the profitable part was going to be the dvd which was projected to make about 50 million dollars well what happened was that all of a sudden and this is an important lesson we learned just before we were ready to go out on tour uh with them to shoot the movie we hadn't finished the con all the contracts so they talked us the record company talked us into splitting the contract into two pieces. Here's let's get the movie done. And then we'll do the, the we'll do the DVD part later. Mm. Well, lo and behold, they tricked us. We got the movie done. The movie was gorgeous. It did well in museums, but it was only museums, So it didn't make a huge profit. Then when we tried to do negotiate, finish the DVD deal, they backed out of that and they gave it to somebody else. Oh, man. 
So all of a sudden, all of the revenue we thought, I mean, we were sure we were going to be rich, yeah. right? We, we made it to Hollywood, our first, first movie, and we are, we are just <laughs> flying high. So mm. the result of that was a five-year lawsuit, which we lost. Wow. Because our investor, just after putting another million in for that lawsuit, just wasn't ready to prepare to lose anymore. So what happened is that we had to close our office. We were in Beverly Hills. We were, you know, living the good life for about, I don't know, a year and a half, something like that. And we just kept thinking we could raise more money to make more movies. But that particular time, it was very difficult time and uh, the the economy was not good and there wasn't any investment money and we were just totally unable to raise any money. We even went so far as to live off of our credit cards for about six months, thinking, oh, we're going to get money and we'll make another film and everything will be okay. Well, it wasn't. So we crashed and burned just about as bad as you can crash and burn. And what happened was that we had to move out of Beverly Hills. We moved to Highland Park, which at that time was a very dangerous kind of ghetto part of Los Angeles. Oh, really? Okay. It was very gang, very gang infested. Now it's become kind of gentrified and a hip place mm-hmm. to live, but it wasn't when we were there. We scrambled. Michael got a job at a juice bar. I got a job at Target, and I actually worked at Target for six mm-hmm. months. And then we found a job that would turn out to be a wonderful job for us. And that was we, and we were probably the highest qualified people that ever applied for the job because we both went to college. We went, we applied for a job at public storage. And I don't know if you're familiar with public storage. I am. Self-storage facilities, Mm -hmm. right? And they put us at a thousand unit large facility they gave us a big three-bedroom house on the property and we went to work as property managers when that property closed at six o'clock at night we turned that place into a movie studio wow and we began our journey of making independent films (laughs) and shifted was the first movie that we made and if you look at the poster you'll see the poster is all of these storage doors Right, and you'll see Michael has a big beard, which he actually grew yeah. for the movie. Right, and so we took our time and educated ourselves on every aspect of filmmaking that you can imagine. We devoured every book we could get our hands on. We watched every YouTube video we could watch, and there weren't that many back then. Right. Yeah, that's true. We. Had Filmmaker Magazine and Movie Maker Magazine, and we bought all these books and watched a lot of movies, and we had enough credit left on our credit card to buy a camera, and we bought a Canon XL1, which was the very first consumer, prosumer camera that you could make a movie with. So so Shifted was shot on that um, XL1. And you know what? We never use that camera again. <laughs> and it's a good lesson because that camera, right after we bought it, I would say six months later, everything went HD. Oh, yeah. Wow. Prior to that, it was SD. Right? And and 
after that, you know, that was it. So what happened anyway, we made shifted and we shot that whole movie practically. We had some locations that we that we did. We walked along Hollywood Boulevard. I was in a wheelchair with a camera acting like I was a uh, a tourist and my and Michael was pushing me, but that was our dolly, right? That was our dolly track. That's incredible. Right. Hey, that's really that's, that's really how, cool. Oh, and it and in the movie, it really works. For example, that wheelchair was something somebody left behind when they left their storage unit. All of our apartment was furnished with things that people left behind. What's the strangest thing someone left behind at a storage unit? Strange. Oh, well, I don't think I even wanted to discuss that. <laughs> there were a lot of disgusting a, a, a things. Body. Part of it was, uh, well, <laughs> I was joking. Really? Oh no, their bodies have been found in stores. Oh my goodness, Linda. They're not, but because people live mm-hmm. there, they're not supposed to. But you know, when we catch them, they have to leave. But so they might be using a bucket for a bathroom. Mm-hmm. Got it. And all that was all our responsibility to clean and take care of that place. So you talk about really being determined to do what you know, what's in your heart and that you want to do. Cause I could have gone and got another job at a bank and made a hundred grand a year. Right. Easy. Exactly. Michael, Michael had a college degree. He could have gone out and got a decent job, but we just got that bug and that was what we wanted to do. And he had moved out to Los Angeles straight out of college because he wanted to act and direct and make movies. And so you have to really want to do it and, and do whatever it takes and, have the persistence to do it. And so what happened was that the internet was not yet fast enough for streaming. Mm -hmm. Yep. Right. However, both Google and Amazon were thinking about it and they knew that eventually it would be fast enough. So they were developing software that they could use in the future. And because of my tech background, I used to always watch like stocks and what companies were doing and what research they were, you know, playing around with. So I wrote, wrote to both Amazon and Google and said, look, you know, we're, we we'd love to beta test if you have any products. And sure enough, Amazon said, okay, yes, we have this product that we're going to put out called Unbox. Mm. And it's not streaming yet, but what it is, is that you can download the DVD and then play it whenever you want. So you don't have to go to the video store. Okay. So that was Amazon's first product. And most, most people were not very, I, I wasn't, I, I'm not aware of it at all. That's okay. really cool so, information. And so we beta tested that and we had the first independent film on unbox and that later became Amazon right. prime as we know it today, T-Vibe. Well, thank you, Linda, for sharing that. And that, that was a long answer. No, it was it was great. And there's a lot to dig into there. And that's what I really appreciated. And of course, all the personal anecdotes as well are, are so are so valuable. It's fascinating to to know that about Amazon. But what sticks out to me as well in the story is that the story begins with you being sort of maybe victim is too strong of a word but being sort of the recipient of bad timing. And then once you made the movie, you were the recipient of good timing. 
being early on Amazon, being early on on the fact that internet isn't there yet, but it will be there. And I know that because I'm into tech is what you basically what you're saying. And so I'm going to write these people and, and figure it out. And now you've in you've you own a small piece of history. And, and I find that fascinating. I'd love to go back a little bit to almost the beginning of your story there, your answer. You talked about this sort of deep desire to not stay in this little town and to not be poor. And I deeply resonate with that. I grew up Mm -hmm. in two small, modest towns. One is named Lower Antioch and the other one is called Woodbine. And I can vividly remember being in Woodbine and and no matter what the color of the buildings were around me, everything just looked gray. I remember thinking, oh my gosh, I cannot, you know, you know, end up here forever here now is okay. I had that modesty. I can be humble. Uh, I know how to be miserable. That's one of my best skills, (laughs) but this idea of staying miserable, I just couldn't get with. And so I am curious in this small, you said manufacturing town, factory town, what exactly was that childhood like and and where did your spark for the arts come from because you're living in this little town what made you fall in love with the arts well that's you know that's a that's really interesting too uh, because back in those days there wasn't much in the way of birth control and <laughs> you know and how to deal with problems if they arose and uh, my parents uh, you know started a family right out of high mm-hmm. school so we'll put it there. And they had four kids fairly quickly. Right. But that was, but that was commonplace dad, then. It, yeah. oh, of course it was. Of course it was. Both of them were smart. Both of them could have gone to college. But World War II started. My dad got drafted and was in the Army Air Force and became an auto mechanic. In fact, one of my sisters was born on an Air Force base, on a military oh, base. Yeah. Then the war ended fairly quickly, uh, and after that, so he never, you know, had to go and actually be an active duty and fight. Thank God, I'm I'm glad for that. Uh, and so, but then he had a family, and he was a very responsible man. He went to work in one of the factories, mm-hmm. and so, and my mom was had four, you know, had girls to raise, and so. College just wasn't, was no longer an, op- an option. So they worked hard all their lives. Uh, but, you know, my mom made all my clothes, okay? And let me tell you, she could have been a fashion designer. I have her drawings. She drew the most gorgeous drawings and designed all of our gowns. And, incredible. Uh, was a seamstress, right? And took in sewing at home. And, and just such a talented artist, right? My dad loved astronomy, had a telescope, studied the stars. He was an excellent carpenter and loved to build things. He was a great mechanic. And so all of that stuff came from them, even though they didn't pursue careers in the arts, they were both very talented, you know, and creative. My dad built amazing things. He could fix anything, you know, and uh, 
You know, he always had some old junker cars in the back that he would fix the cars with. Not one of their cars ever went to a, a garage to be fixed. It feels like you have to use a magnifying glass to find those kind of men now. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, and, and they saved all, you know, they saved all their lives when they retired they started traveling the world and had a really wonderful retirement. They came to visit me in Saudi Arabia, okay? It's beautiful. They they visited me in Egypt, they visited me in London, they then went on, you know, and just for them to become these explorers in their, you know, in their retirement years, it was wonderful. Oh. And then they both passed within 6 months of each other, you know, like in their yeah. 70s and and uh they lived their form of the American dream. Even though, you know, we were kind of poor, we didn't lack really for anything. And we, we didn't really, I wouldn't say I felt poor, except that I think sometimes I resented that I couldn't buy clothes in the store, that my mom made all my clothes. Yeah. So that was, a, that was a little sign to me, you know, and that, that uh, and my dad worked two full-time jobs, two, my whole life. And so we, we, we didn't see a lot of them except on the weekends. But boy, I'll tell you, every Sunday we went on a family drive. Every single Sunday. And every Saturday night we had a steak dinner. You know, so they did all of these little things to try and make us feel like we had a, you know, a full life, even though they didn't have. I really life. relate to that. I really do. Yeah. You know, I, my sense. My, fortunate to have such good parents. My, my, my sense of it. Exactly. My, my sense of it is, has always been, you don't know you're poor until someone tells you you're poor. Everybody in this town was poor. Right. There was nothing to complain. Right. Yeah. The same experience for me. Like, like we, we had what we had. Now, you know, I wouldn't say we were poor, but I'd say we, we, you know, we had what we had and we didn't know we didn't have something. And I didn't know I didn't have something until my friend said, you know, what are those shoes? Or like, like what, you know, like, and then all of a sudden I was sort of, sort of put in the, the sort of game of who has what and and what that means. But the, the household was happy and, and, you know, rich in a lot of love and laughs and fun. And those are the memories that I have. I, I suppose your dad's creativity around, building things maybe sparked your interest in arts or was it something else? Well, my mother and your mother and your mother, yeah. Making clothes. She actually was an artist and my dad was, um, I'll I'll show you. Please. My dad used this camera for 30 years. (laughs) The Pentax. Yeah. And he was an avid photographer. There weren't movie cameras really yet. Uh, Yeah. Right. Not that he could I learned a really good lesson from a guy named Stacy Widlitz, who's famous for writing the song "She's Like the Wind" for the movie Dirty oh, Dancing. Yeah. He's uh-huh. scored some a lot of movies as well, and today he's a photographer, and he uh-huh. sells his black and whites in galleries. And he was talking to me and a colleague about here's the camera I use, and he. And he showed the camera and it's not like what you would think. I mean, he's selling these incredible pictures. They're not cheap. And he shows the camera and we're like, okay, we thought this would be some 
$8,000 Canon that, that you have and, and with thousand dollar lenses, he goes, no. And he just explained that, you know, what's lost in the age of sort of Instagram and, and the quick sort of commoditized picture is you have all these people who don't understand subject. So what makes his photographer, his, his photographs powerful is that he picks great subjects, great locations Mm -hmm. and can focus in on them in composition very much like a great filmmaker you know, understands those are important. It's not about how many pixels and how bright the picture is and just taking a picture of anything. And that's a that what you just showed me of your father's and just that avid sort of interest in photography. I, I can already tell he was the kind of guy that understood that. And it reminded me of my friend, oh, yeah. my friend, Stacy. Amazing photo. You talked about being the first female banker kudos i love i love your drive and your innovation in all these spaces by the way what was the movie industry like if you can remember back back then you know when you were growing up and and, you know going to college and all this stuff like was there anything you remember about that industry that stood out to you today that that maybe drove you towards it no i mean i really didn't in college i really wasn't thinking about movies at all. Oh, I, I, I painted. I, in fact, I have several paintings on permanent exhibition and at, uh, at college, I went to a combination of, uh, Russell Sage college for women and Rensselaer Polytechnic, which is an engineering school and RPI was where all my math courses were. And they had the very first IBM computer in an educational environment. And the reason they had that computer was that their aeronautical engineering school was where all the astronauts. Yeah. Okay. And so, uh, so they were very advanced, you know, and I really, I got to write a computer program <laughs> back then when nobody, there were no personal computers. We, we had punch cards that were in shoe boxes. It was crazy. <laughs> That, you know, is where, where, where that whole tech thing developed. That's right. You know, so, and, and today our business is so technology, Mm -hmm. so technology driven. You know, I think there's, can be some resistance on filmmakers parts about technology. And that's unfortunate. You have to embrace all of it. You have to embrace marketing. You have to embrace technology. You have to embrace the art and all the crafts involved with that and the business of it and film schools don't teach a lot of what they need to teach now that is true when we got into this business in 2015 in earnest we had a decision to make and it was do we go me and my founder do we go to film school or do we put this money into real filmmakers and learn from set we chose to learn from set and to this day, it is one of the best decisions we ever made. Fast forward to today, we have three feature films and worldwide distribution. We've done a couple of short films. You know, we're part of the Producers Guild. It's been it's been beneficial. And I think had we gone to film school, to your point, Linda, we would have been lost going on to set for the first time. What happened? 
happens is that I think a lot of people come out of uh, film school with a false sense of what the business mm -hmm. is. Mm -hmm. In film school, you're handed the best equipment. You are you have a huge talent pool to work mm -hmm. with. And so when you get out in the real world and you don't have any of that, you can be really lost. And uh, I know I've seen some really people that could have developed into really good filmmakers just say, screw this. I'm it's not too bad. hard. Yeah. Quit. Yeah. Yeah. That's always sad. We see that. And you, once they've gotten to that place, you you never can talk them out of it anyway. It's 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 interesting what happens to a person when they're when they're beat. You yeah. did mention, and I'd be cheating this audience if I didn't bring it back up. You did mention being an investment banker in Saudi Arabia and being an IT executive. Looking back on it now, was there anything that those two fields gave you that prepared you for your eventual work in the entertainment industry in film distribution industry? I think both. I mean, first of all, living in a culture so vastly different from my own opened my eyes and I highly recommend everyone to travel. <laughs> travel is really, really important. It really opens your eyes. One, one, you come back with a huge sense of how wonderful the Amer America yeah. is. First yeah. of all. But second of all, you learn to embrace the diversity of cultures on our planet. And, uh, you know, I've traveled everywhere and, you know, while I was doing that mm -hmm. business and, it just really opened opened my eyes and expanded my universe. And when you're telling stories, you know, and making films, it's a fact that all of those things can influence you, right? All of them. And and you can learn to tell bigger stories. Yeah. yeah. You know? It made me less afraid to tell a, a bigger story. I mean, shifted is a complicated movie. Our very first film, we wrote the script. And, you know, they say, right, what you know, it's about a guy, a mortgage broker, investment mortgage broker, who comes out to California to open a whole bunch of offices. And and uh, the, um, the owner of the company gets arrested for SEC violations and the whole company shuts down and he gets stranded out there. And he winds up living in a storage unit, <laughs> right? And so... All of those influences helped enrich that story, right. Right. And, you know. So and so so I think you know travel and and then the investment banking uh, really helped me. I think understand about uh, the emerging technology mm. and what was coming. Variety did an article, and Ann Thompson did an article and uh, in an interview with me in like two thousand. 2006 and it was someday you know over the rainbow people will watch movies on the internet <laughs> and it was like nobody in Hollywood yeah. had any idea that was coming and they didn't I'm telling you it's only two years ago that the studio started streaming two years That's ago crazy, right? and what happened is they let tech companies like Amazon and 
Apple and Google totally take over the business. Who won all the Academy Awards this year? Netflix. They just let the tech companies move in and just absolutely take over the industry. Yep. It's, and they're scrambling now to catch up. Yeah. So what do they do? Rather than start from scratch, they go out and they've got the money to buy. So that's why you see things like Fox buying Tubi, which was the most successful Avon platform. So they didn't have to start over. But unfortunately, what, what happens with that is that they're now flooding Tubi with star-driven content from their library and catalog material. So they're, they're putting up movies with Brad Pitt and, you know, and the big stars. And what does that do to the indie films it pushes right now? Right. And so we have to work harder to get seen now than we did before. Yeah. And I think Tubi also has this dual sort of brand now where there's the Fox films you can watch. And then, you know, if you're on Twitter, you see it all the time. And on Instagram, you see it all the time where people are sort of making fun of how preposterous some of the indie films are that are on there because they're, because they'll find these films and some of these films will have just filmmakers that haven't even tried. And so there's, there is a sort of like open the floodgates kind of vibe to, 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 to be that. I think also in this weird indirect way also hurts independent filmmakers that are, that are giving their all. Yeah. Tubi's an interesting uh, situation. There's another streamer called movie M U B I and they give you, they curate all their movies, but they're movies you have never heard of that are great. And they're these indie films that probably just lacked branding and marketing funds to, and P and a to, to be big. And that is a, that you know that channel is on the level of an you know independent film channel or a Sundance or in Criterion in, in my opinion. So if everybody wants to to check that out, and unfortunately they don't have a huge audience, so people aren't making much. Money. Right? Maybe it'll get bigger. Yeah, it's a changing world. We always talk about like innovation is is, and you'll probably appreciate this with your background. Innovation tends to be if it's unbundled, bundle it. And if it's bundled, unbundle it. <laughs> That's all the innovation is. So you had all the channels bundled on cable, then they unbundled it and streamed it, and now they're trying to rebundle it again right. with channels like like fast channels like Pluto TV and, and et cetera. So I think for us as as filmmakers and producers and distributors, we're kind of chasing the tail of these these movements in tech. Well, that's one of the things that we're known for is our innovation. Yep. Indie Rights is known for being ahead of the curve. So we are constantly trying new things and, and keeping on the top side of tech. Like we were one of the first films uh, companies to actually migrate all of our content to the cloud. Yeah. Now, every movie that we have resides in on mm -hmm. AWS, you know, Amazon Web Services in buckets so that if a new... If, say, Paramount comes up with some new streaming service that they're just starting yeah. or yeah, yeah, yeah. anybody, and they want 300 films, I can give them 300 films in five minutes. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. I just give them a link to the buckets that they want for the films the that slates. they want. Yeah. Whereas before, we had to upload one film at a time. And you know how long that yeah. takes. Yeah. 
You can imagine it would take you months to deliver 300 yeah. films. Months. 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 So we're well positioned to all of the new streaming platforms in Europe that are just starting. Streaming's in its infancy. Yeah. We're maturing here in the United States, but outside the United States, they barely know what Avon is. But they're gonna. They happen to run four or five years behind us. And let me tell you, when we go to Cannes in May, when I was at AFM, I must have had 40 meetings with new streaming companies in Europe that are want content. Yeah, that's remarkable. And because I think that what's lost on us here at the state side or what we take for granted is that there's still 30% of the population that doesn't have access to the internet that will have access to the internet. in, like you said, in the next five years, like yeah. Starlink alone uh, for Elon Musk's company will probably provide those rural and poor areas with internet in the next five years. So somebody can stream something. So there's a massive opportunity for That's why they're still using DVDs because yeah. they can't stream. Yeah. And we still, we still, you know, um, we do DVDs and Blu-rays for people. Yeah. And if somebody, you know, those are great when you, when your filmmaker buys a box of them wholesale price, they can go out, charge double and do it at a pop-up table in LA. That's, that's a good little sort of, I'd say guerrilla marketing scheme that that's worked in the past for us. Right. Steven Pressfield, who's famous for many books, but, but one apropos to this conversation, the war of art. And I don't know if you've read it, but it's a book everybody should read uh, if you're in the arts. And I see Linda is now is now getting up, going to uh, her bookshelf, and I think she is going to probably bring back. Oh, I was gonna. Where is it? The War of Art. You know, Linda, it's a skinny book, so you know it's easy to like uh, overlook. Oh, there it is, The War of Art. There it is, and Art and Fear. I love that. That's so in the war of art, Linda, one of the themes, matter of fact, it's the name of an entire chapter is called resistance. And that was powerful for me to read because I didn't realize how much resistance existed around my own life all the time. And the people I had in my life, when you wanted to switch from this highly lucrative career in banking and investment banking to film who were the people around you that were saying you were crazy? Who, who where, where did you find resistance and how did you overcome resistance for all those out there who are looking to make that career change that you made? You know what? The, my, the biggest support that I got was my partner, Michael. Mm. And uh, we became a couple during the course of making that InSync film and have been together now 24, almost 24 years. And I have to tell you, it was kind of heartbreaking because a lot of our friends, when we were doing well, mm -hmm. we, we had a really busy social life. The phone was ringing off the hooks. Once we were living at public storage, the phone stopped wow. ringing. People stopped coming around. People just went away. You know, it was tough. And and Michael, even Michael's parents are, what are you doing? We, you know, we put you through college. What are yeah. you doing? My, my parents had already passed, so I didn't have, you know, that influence. But 
it took a long time for his parents to really, you know, accept, you know, what he was doing when things didn't work out the first one. Of course, they were excited about the, you know, when when things were good in the first one. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, it's great. But then when we took a tumble, you know, they... I mean, they they almost talked him into coming back to Texas. He's from Texas. They tried to talk him into coming home. So we kind of supported each other. We were very fortunate because a lot of times filmmakers are on their own or they have a spouse that just is not interested in the business and they're like, no, no, you're get out of that. <laughs> so so that can be that can be really really tough. So I mean, I just didn't have anyone telling me not to do it, but I didn't have anybody else encouraging me other than my So we kind of supported each other through that. And then as we started, you know, like making movies and, you know, getting in some festivals and, you know, get it starting the distribution company. I mean, we started the distribution because we couldn't find a deal that we thought was honorable enough to sign. Right. We just were just said we'll never be able to survive if this is the kind of contract we're going to start our own distribution company and we were lucky we did it when we did because today you can't do it here here and you know when two people lean on each other forms a triangle which is the strongest shape known to man and that's what you guys did you formed a triangle and and, and yeah. withstood the storm I mean, it's really a great story yeah. And like you said, sometimes when there's nobody telling you to go for it, that's its own form of resistance. So again, kudos to you for having that stick and faith in both of you to, to move forward. I'd like to just shift the conversation directly to Indie Rights now, if that's okay. Sure. And sure. you mentioned Michael Madison, your partner and co-owner in this business. How do the two of you split up the business related responsibilities? Because I think that when people see indie rights, they think of you. Talk about how you guys split up those responsibilities. It, it's really interesting because, you know, like he he sees me as the mouthpiece of. Okay. <laughs> and, you know, and, and I'm the CEO and he is the COO and the CCO. Okay. I lean more towards the right brain. He leans more towards the left brain, although we both are lucky to have both. Michael has the most incredible business instincts of anyone I have ever met. He has great radar when it comes to going, nope, we shouldn't do business with that person. Or he can just read people. Incredible. But... He came out wanting to act and direct. So, and, and, and so I'm the producer, he's the director, right? right? And everything just kind of works that way where we're not like this, we're like Mm. this. When it comes to editing a film, he likes to cut. I like to color who, you know, why that is, (laughs) I don't know, but that's, I can't cut. He can sit and cut and cut and cut so fast. I'm like, oh my God, this and that. I, 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 it's so hard for me. And he'll say, oh, well, this looks fine the way it is. And then I'll do the color. And he'll go, oh, that looks way better. <laughs> so it just has happened to work out that way. 
So, you know, obviously on set where he would, he would be directing and I will be producing. Got it. And so that's works well. So that's as far as the filmmaking. Goes. It sounds like you interchange right now, brains, right? So on set he directs and then you become the together. producer, which is more left brain. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And then, then when it comes to the distribution, I tend to be the one that talks to filmmakers and coach them on, on marketing. It's not his favorite part. He handles all of the um, uh, encoding and delivery and operate that part of the operations part and works with our QC guys, right. you know, that, that QC yep. the films. And that's, it's very technical, but it's also very artistic, you know, so uh, you know, they all split up. I, I have a strong legal background, so I work on the contracts and I have a really close friend of mine for 30 years, uh, who's a film professor. Her name is Beth Dewey and she heads up our acquisition Shout department and she is a professor at Loyola and teaches film and editing. And, and so, you know, we work closely together on, you know, on that part of the business. It sounds like you, you both fit the description that I've offered up to this audience in the past, which is that filmmakers are just engineers that are creative, yeah. right? They're like the most, These they're like MacGyver. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And Michael is great at social media. Mm -hmm. I mean, he, he's constantly tweeting and doing Instagram stories and he's, very creative with his promotions that he makes, you know, they're fantastic. Yeah, he's a good, he's a fun follow too. I just, we just followed him recently on, on IG and we'll, we'll make sure we go through yeah. and follow, follow him and you, you guys on every platform, yeah. of course. Uh, so yeah, everybody out there, you should go follow oh, Michael Madison. Yeah, I think so. That's, that's very good. And I appreciate you sharing that. I know that's kind of, it doesn't on the surface seem like a, personal question, but if you are an entrepreneur like we are, you know that it's a very, very intimate question. So I appreciate you answering that. And we are both uh, entrepreneurs for yep. sure. Uh, his father, he grew up in an entrepreneurial household. His dad owned his own company. Okay. You know, got it. his whole life. So uh, he grew up knowing that he wanted to own his own company and be in charge of his own life. He never wanted to go work for Xerox yeah. or a corporation yeah. ever. Yeah. Yeah. No. I think that's what it's so, all about too. I think that's the, that's the opportunity America presents. Like you, everyone should take advantage of it. Just try it once, once in their life. Indie rights. It's known. It's famous for its generous split with filmmakers on the income from distribution contracts. You guys take 20%, you give the filmmakers 80%. And just to let this audience know, most of the services deal distributors in indie film will do a 75-25 split or even worse. And they will take a bunch of fees for shotgunning your movie out through BitMax or other services, except they'll take a, a, a giant vig on that where, you know, it might cost them four fifty or eight fifty or a thousand dollars, and they'll take an eight thousand, yeah, up to from two thousand up to eight thousand dollar fee to do that. Whereas indie rights, you guys don't do that. So, how did you make the decision to do that? And and 
Is there any time where you meet a filmmaker that doesn't want to take that deal? Yes. And, and we'll talk about both those things. Well, the reason <laughs> that we didn't do that was we couldn't afford to do that. <laughs> so we were forced to learn how to do that ourselves. Right, right. <laughs> and so from day one, we learned Premiere. Mm-hmm. We learned how to encode to the specs that our partners needed. And, and we so we all of the... Preliminary QC is done in-house. Any encoding is done in-house, uh, in-house, and all of our deliveries are done in-house. So there's no cost involved. The only cost we have is the amount of time, you know, the the prep time of the person that yeah. does it, but it's minimal. What made you choose the 80-20 split over, let's say, 70-30 or 75-25? One, we wanted to be competitive. Mm-hmm. We were a new company. We knew that if we were going to attract business, we had to have a deal that looked better than other people's deal. And so we, you know, we had received like, I don't know, maybe seven or eight offers for shifted Mm -hmm. from various other not to be named. (laughs) Feel free to name them. (laughs) I kid, I kid. And they were all like, 35% 35% or somewhere between 25 and 35% and they would have marketing expenses up to 50,000 mm-hmm. and, you know, and some of them wouldn't even, you know, wouldn't even cap the marketing expenses. So one of the things I teach people is if you do go with someone else, make sure you cap the marketing expense right. and cut it down, Should you know, because most distributors will, absolutely expense you to death and and even if they tempt you with a carrot of a 10 or twenty thousand dollar mg up front it's probably all you'll ever see Mm. because they'll they'll keep all the rest and whereas you could make a couple hundred grand if you went with somebody that didn't charge expenses and was on a straight percentage basis so we knew that we had to at least have a deal that looked attractive on the surface in an easy to understand way. So that's, that's, and we, and we figured because we can do the encoding and delivery ourselves, 20% would be enough to run the business. And we were a home-based business from day one. We had, so you weren't paying lease anywhere. Well, we, 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 we didn't have any rent. Yeah. We were, we were living at housing provided by public storage. <laughs> we gave you a free house. Yeah. Right? And so now the trap of that was that it took us almost 10 years before we saved enough money and were generating enough revenue with Indie Rights that we could move out and leave Well, and do it full time. But that's our story and it took that long and we knew it was coming because our business was doubling. Every yeah, yeah, yeah. Knew at some point we would be able to live yeah, there. The, the compound but interest the of the business. Of, the last couple of years were really <laughs> tough. But we did another movie there. Uh, we did uh, deliver it there. We also did six national commercials there, which is the easiest money for me in my life. Hundred thousand dollars for three days' work. It was ridiculous. Yeah. We thought, oh boy, this is yeah, the that way doesn't to go. suck. <laughs> that's that's good stuff. You know, the other thing that I really found very generous of you and Michael is 
this idea that you share all the analytics of all the films with the filmmakers. And just again, for those who don't know, you will get a quarterly report with your check and they will show you, you know, where your money came from, what the splits were and that, and it'll just be on your film. And you are really in a position to just trust that that report is correct and thorough and the dollars are right and the payouts are correct and you can always audit. But I think one of the things most distributors know is that, that that indie filmmaker is not going to call for that audit or spend the money on that. But with indie rights, they make you hire an expensive CPA. CPA, Exactly. And, And with indie rights, they let you know what is driving the slate. And can you just, I have a sense of it before the audience, Linda, can you just speak to why it's important that you do that and how it helps filmmakers, you know, sort of understand their, their standing in the market? Well, first of all, what we do, we have a giant spreadsheet. <laughs> I imagine. Um, and that giant spreadsheet lists every film down the side and that's I don't know, about 1,500 films now. And then across the top are the platforms, Amazon, Tubi, Google Play, yeah. right? And how much your film by, you know, by title and by platform is entered into this giant summary spreadsheet. Mm-hmm. And we do that because we feel it's really important that a filmmaker can see one, how their film is doing in comparison to other films. If you just get a statement and it just has your number on it, you don't know if you're doing good or bad. But if you get a you you get a statement and you could say, oh, here's a similar film to mine. It's also a horror film. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they made twenty thousand dollars last month or last quarter, and I only made four hundred and fifty dollars. What's wrong? Right. right. What's that like? So what happens is it winds up the people that are doing better wind up inspiring the other people to figure out what they what they're not that they're doing something wrong, but what aren't they doing that could help them find a bigger audience for their film. So it really is inspirational. And the other thing is that it also there's very little data out mm-hmm. there. So it, if, if someone's considering their next film and what kind of movie they want to make, it gives them an idea where money can be made. Oh, it gives you a sense of, well, gee, these kinds of films are, there are people doing really well here. Yeah. Right? It's, it's free research. So like a lot of people, Market exactly. research. And it's not, it's not available anywhere. Now on top of that, master sheet if somebody wants to dig into it we have the actual reports that come from the platforms available on google drive and people can research those down to the transaction they can see what country the revenue came from say like amazon like people that are on amazon prime they might be in 30 40 50 different countries and they can see which country where what right they can also see how many how many HD versions of their film rented or sold. How many SD? All of that information is available. On Avon platforms, how many ads got watched, you know, of their movies? So it's it helps the filmmakers get an understanding of 
where their money's being generated and and how they're doing. And and also it means there's no need for an audit because if you come to my office, you're going to see the same thing there available <laughs> to you. Never had to have an audit ever. That's brilliant. Now I will tell you, I've had three or four different people over the course course the last couple of years question that, and I just zoom them. I share my screen in a Zoom call and show them how I download the numbers from the platform and how that winds up on that report and how it winds up on that big spreadsheet. I love it. They're like, oh, wow, there's no way you can jerry-rig that. It is what it is. Linda, I think that's that's brilliant, personally. I I would love to talk to you more about about that and seeing some of that stuff. don't want us to share their numbers and I and once I explained to them the benefit of it and then I said if you know we're happy to give you back your film if you don't want to do that but we're not going to change what we do because it, there's too much benefit it's a differentiator for you guys as well so I, I wouldn't change it it does segue though for me at least your comment about you know where you're doing well how to do better and inspiration to do better the, the one criticism that I've read of, of your company, you know, across our research is that, you know, there's no branding or marketing. Now that's just, that's a lot of distributors. Uh, and you leave that up to the filmmaker, uh, Bonsai Creative, we're a branding and marketing I, firm. Is the criticism fair? And do you think it's a good trade-off for the 80, 20 no. split? Well, what are your thoughts on this? It's not fair. First okay, of all, okay. we are constantly marketing constantly. If you look on our Instagram account, you'll see that we promote every single film. There's probably five stories a day. We tweet, we do Instagram stories. We are always posting, you know, like on Facebook. It it has to be a team effort. Mm -hmm. We teach people, we give people a 50 page marketing guidebook with strategies. Part of that strategy is to teach them how to tag so that we get notified whenever they do a promo. Yeah. Once we're tagged, we're watching constantly. Somebody tags us, we retell that story, we retweet that, we repost that. If a filmmaker doesn't do anything, we got nothing to say. <laughs> right. And and so it's a team effort. So the people that complain the loudest are the ones that aren't doing any promotion themselves. Right. And they're like, oh, I gotta do everything. Well. It's, you know what? Filmmakers have to embrace post post. It's critical. Oh, I, I like that critical. term post post because that's invented uh, uh, that. We've been saying that for about five years, five, ten well, years. Well, I love now. it because my experience with filmmakers is when you get done with a feature film, you're exhausted. You're out of energy and you actually do want somebody to take your quote unquote baby. Like, take my baby away, go care for it, go raise it. I am exhausted. But you have to have post post energy. Yeah, you do. And you have to prepare for distribution during production. Mm-hmm. You've got everyone in your cast and crew has got a 4K camera in their pocket. Make them use it. Provide them a repository on Google Drive to upload stuff to. So that when by the time the movie's done, you've got enough promotional material to last you years. Yep. Simple. We do, it's really simple. We do something similar as well, which right? again, I'd love to talk yeah. to you about after this conversation, but go ahead. Okay. But now let's talk about that. So that's the B to C promotion. Mm-hmm. Yep. Right. Business to consumer. Business to, to consumer. Con- mm-hmm. Consumer. All right. 
What about this? Okay. So for those just listening, That's Linda's holding up a magazine. Ads. Say that again. Say Very. that again, Linda. Very expensive ads that we do, B2B. We're, we are advertising in trades to sell your movie, to license your So for movie. those not... And we go to American Film Market. There you go. And we do a beautiful catalog. Ah, yes. For each market. And if you follow our strategies and build a huge... Uh, Rotten Tomato page with lots of tomatoes on it. You're going to get, you know, your Rotten Tomato reviews in this book because when a buyer sits down at our booth in Cannes, they watch a trailer. First thing they do is they're on Rotten Tomatoes looking to see what the reviews are. That's interesting. And we teach people how to get 100% Rotten Tomato. So, and so that stuff, that's expensive. And we do that out of our 20%. We don't charge our filmmakers for that. That's expensive paid advertising. All right, so for those out here that, that are listening, the criticism is unfair and and they're willing to they're willing to work with you and they do more uh, than than I would say a handful of other distributors that are I would say are you know peers of indie rights. So just a just a thought out there for those here, listening. There's two more things. There's mm-hmm. two more things that are really important. One We have a group, a private group on Facebook of over 800 filmmakers. We trade reviews with each other. Reviews drive sales. Yes, they do. That's marketing you cannot buy. You can't buy that. Okay. I don't care how much. It's really smart too. It's valuable because on Amazon, for example, if if you don't have enough reviews, you're not getting chosen for prime. Or freebie, right. and you you got to you've got to be chosen by them now. Right, they're they're curated. Okay. Yep, we'll get you up there. They're highly curated. Yep. And and then the other thing is that um, oh, what was the second thing I was going to say? Um, I forget. There was another. We'll was come. Another we'll we'll come back to it. And and for those that can only listen to this podcast, what Linda just. Uh, illustrated was uh ads that she's placed in trades and in places like afm and can and in certain in certain uh conference uh magazines and booklets so i saw it with my own eyes if you want to see it you can go to youtube and watch this interview and you can see the exact ad she put up they looked great i wanted to ask a question about the comment you made about the google drive and having all those uh, streamers names sort of across the top line and, and what what platform and if you don't mind sharing this our streaming service do you have the most films on and which is the easiest or hardest to work with all right so well i'm, I'm gonna kind of uh, split that up and 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 first say that I thought you were going to ask me which one's doing the best. <laughs> we can answer that too. Well, that, so I, I want to proceed my answer with that. And the answer to that is it's constantly changing. Mm. Five years ago, I would have said iTunes. We will make most of your money on iTunes. Four to three years ago, I would have said, we'll make most of your money on Amazon. 
first T-Bot and then later right. Prime S-Bot. Two, starting two years ago, a year and a half ago, we'll, you'll make the most money on Tubi. By the end of this year, it's possible that you will make the most money on our YouTube Avod channel. Yeah, you guys have a great YouTube channel. And it pays better than Tubi. <laughs> the pay rate, pay rate yeah. is higher. However, the caveat with that is you cannot make your film so edgy that it can't play on YouTube. Oh, yeah. That's a great point. And we'll should talk about that at some point. Well, go, let's talk it about it now. To, yeah, go ahead. It has to be advertiser-friendly. Got it. Companies have to be willing to put an ad on there. Lexus, I don't care who it is. Big companies place ads on our films. And if you've got MF, every other word, not going to happen. Right. You know, if you're snorting coke, Fall through the movie, ain't gonna happen. If you have explicit sexual scenes, ain't gonna happen. So what we're now having a lot of our filmmakers do is to create a network version mm. of their film. That's interesting. So think of it that way. So, and it only has to be MP4. So make whatever movies in your heart that you wanna make. We'll put that on platforms, but for the YouTube channel, make a clean network, you know, version MP4 for us, and then we can put that on our YouTube channel. So uh, it's always changing uh, where things are popular. We are also on channels like Pluto and Voodoo and the Roku channel and Crackle and Redbox. Now, they are not making as much money as Amazon and, you, and Tubi. Right now, Amazon and Tubi are still the two top. Amazon is starting to fade, I have to tell Interesting. you. Interesting. Interesting. If you don't do a substantial amount of marketing, your Amazon pay rate is going to be terrible. Yeah. It'll be a penny an hour. Yeah, they do. They do something. I think they even lowered it. it used to be six cents for every ninety minutes watched, and I think it's lower now. It's not like that, but it's based on your customer engagement rate rating. Mm. Which we have some films that are up in the nineties, and they're making ten, eleven, twelve cents an hour. Okay, which is good. So it's a sliding scale. It's a sliding mm. scale, but up to sixty, it's a penny an hour which is horrible. Yeah, I would say so. Yeah. And that, and that, they have an algorithm that compares you to every other movie on their site. And it has to do with who's the studio that put you out. We happen to get good waiting for that. Who's the director? Who's the cast? How many reviews do you have? The quality of your reviews? Are you sharing using their share options? And let me tell you, they have a new share option for Instagram. Okay. Just started. It's fabulous. So, the share button on the on the detail page mm -hmm. uh, of uh, Amazon. Now, if you click on that share button, you will see that you can. Uh, it'll make an Instagram story in its can a Can a viewer click that Instagram post and be and buy your movie right away, or is there a few clicks they have to go through? No, it should go right to that detail. So, page. so one click takes you to the detail page. Detail page. Next click. To buy or watch, watch depending on depending no, yeah. on where the movie is. Okay, oh. that's great. 
That's great. And I, I, I'm looking forward to the day where you get organic buy and play in social. So, you know, if, yeah. if Twitter can live stream a soccer match that has 200 million people watching it simultaneously, then they can live stream a movie that you, you know, the credit card's already on file, right? At least Twitter today, yeah. Twitter today, you have to pay yeah. for it's your credit card's already there. So you charge a dollar, you charge $2, you charge $5, whatever you charge, Linda. But you click you click the movie, it comes right out of your credit card. The person watching doesn't feel that impact. They don't have to do any clicks. Right. Money's taken right out. You start watching the movie organically right there on your device. That's yeah. going to be the game changer for indie. I can't wait for that. But this share button is super awesome. Is there any other technology yeah. or industry innovation that you know of that that's had a big impact on, on indie right now? Uh, no, not, not too much else is uh, brand new. It's just that there are tons of new channels. I mean, we, there's a lot of specialty channels. Like we now, like we have uh, anything sports related. We put on swerve. Swerve. What is swerve? It's a sports <laughs> channel, okay, and it's good. And then uh, for uh, LGBT, mm-hmm. we have Deco. Mm-hmm. So they're starting to be, you know, some really good specialty channels besides, you know, the general channels. How would that work? How would that work with those uh, the way it's traditionally worked, where you can place your film on all these places in one fell swoop? Will all these other new streamers be added to that? Or do you as a distributor have to go out and, and curate oh, that? Oh, no, we have every, every single one is separate. Every delivery is separate. There's no mass delivery. There's no standardization in our industry. Got it. It's a nightmare. So, so No standardization at all. Everyone has different formats that they want. Everyone has different metadata sheets that they want. All- so you lean on the reviews and your your reaction to the film to decide how much effort you're going to put in to place it X amount of places. Is that generally how you do it? No. Like to figure out which films are great and which ones are good, which ones are bad? All of our films go to Amazon okay. and they take them all. We've only had like two in the past couple of years. Not. Exciting. Okay. Okay. That's good to know. Uh, yeah. And then uh, all of our films go to Tubi. They've never rejected from us because <laughs> they depend on us to curate. Right, right. right? So uh, all of our films go on Google Play and YouTube movies. Now, recently, we've been invited by Google to uh, have our movies go on their free with ads. Okay, nice. Which is great because that's all studio films and they have our films sitting next to all those studio films. Looks really that's, cool. that's huge. So that's a new, yeah, that's a new, that's a new, Brand new option. Well, I, I think, well, look, I cannot wait to get the feedback from this conversation. You, you, Linda, have been so generous with your time. I just have a few more uh, sort of bullet questions for you and, and, and we'll okay. get you out of here because you've, this is, this has <laughs> been, this has just been a, a, this has been better than film school. And we'll, for, for a lot of folks, especially on the, the post side and the distribution side, understanding what to expect and and not to you know be delusional about what's out there. I am curious. You mentioned which platforms are doing better and what you would have said five years ago, three years ago, and today of the of your film library, which is over twelve hundred films, I believe. 
most things in life, I'll, I'll, I'll preface it this way. Most things follow Pareto's law, which is just the 80-20 rule. Is that true for indie rights as well? Are 20% of your films making 80% of your profit? Absolutely. Or is it a different percentage in your opinion? It might even be closer to 10 to <laughs> <laughs> But it, it, it's in that range. A hundred. Absolutely. So, absolutely. And it has nothing to do with time. I have, I have eight and 10 year old films that are going strong. So what are the qualities that happened? you would share with this audience? The filmmakers dropped the ball. The filmmakers dropped, dropped the ball. So of the films that are doing well, even over doing well over time, can you describe what not dropping the ball looks like and, and what those films had that the others that are failing don't? They maintain a social media presence. And um, one of the, there's so much more to talk about. One of the biggest mistakes that filmmakers make is they think their film is a brand. Okay. A film is not a brand. The filmmaker is the brand or the production Amen. company. Amen brand okay you want one youtube channel one instagram account one twitter account and then a separate facebook movie page for each project mm -hmm. you want to build an audience so that there's people waiting for your next film that's why for instagram youtube channel and twitter you just want that to be you if you're a filmmaker kind of an auteur filmmaker it can be your name yep. Or it can be the name of your production company. You want to build there so that you have a growing audience for your body of work because you're the brand. Most social media companies that people try to hire, they don't know how to deal with a film. They only know how to deal with a brand. And this is not toothpaste. It's not McDonald's. It's not Netflix. You need to be conscious of that. Yes. So it's really important that uh, people understand that concept. And then that, because I see people, they got 40 sites to maintain because they've made all of those for every movie. <laughs> and it's, you know, you can't do that. You can't keep that up. So I always make them to combine them all, just dump the other ones and never wind up having that many on any individual one anyway. Yeah. So that's really, really, really important. So what you're saying is, is, is make a page on every social for you as a filmmaker and then promote your film through that, not individual films. That's right. So that, so that say on your YouTube channel, when you just have one film, you can have multiple sections. You can have clips from the movie, interviews with the cast and crew, behind the scenes. Then when you have a new movie, then you put the new movie on the top. Yeah. Right. And then you start having sections for each movie. Yep. Right. Yep. And so in the video, you know, the clips from the movie, you have right in top of the description link to where you, people can watch the movie. Because, mm -hmm. you know, if you want to watch the whole movie, click here. Yep. Right. So, you know, it's very, very valuable. And you're going to build a subscriber base. Our YouTube channel a year ago I had 10,000 subscribers. We now have 320,000. Holy moly. Okay. Congratulations. And it's and it's just, well, we never thought to put home movies up there. <laughs> you know, and then we said, well, geez, why not? Why can't, that's our Tubi. Right. Yeah. Right? That's our Tubi. You know, it, it, it takes a while to build up a channel, but, you know, it's just, uh, it's about being regular 
It starts to snowball. Content. Yeah. Yeah. And YouTube just released the new CEO of, of YouTube just released a statement talking about how they're going to double down on paying and embracing podcasters, uh, filmmakers, creators of all kinds. So I think it's just going to keep getting better at YouTube as they try to compete with TikTok. TikTok is, is in beta testing for their shop feature. Now that assumes that TikTok doesn't get banned, but 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 TikTok has a shop feature that they're in beta testing now where you can basically set up a store in TikTok and they can buy your film, watch your film, buy your merch. Um, so I think it's just going to keep getting better. But like you said, Linda, you just can't drop the ball on it. You have to have that post-post energy where you're running a business. And there are really inexpensive scheduling software. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. We schedule, we schedule our promos months in advance yeah and they go they go to all three platforms at the same time yep so, we use buffer yeah we we use a, a, a agora plus yeah there's another one and called uh, postly that's really inexpensive yeah, yeah, yeah. and so a lot of filmmakers they just you know they they don't explore the tools that are available or new ones that become available and you always want to try and you know, and I think um, something that's important and that, that that we encourage is to participate in some filmmaker groups so that you you're you hear about new ideas and people are sharing ideas. Networking is really really important. A lot of filmmakers just kind of like operate in this in a cave, you know, and they and they just kind of like shut themselves off and isolate from the rest of the yeah. uh, world and, and the community, it's a collaborative art, you know, the, so community is really, really important. I, and so I agree. You can't live in a vacuum and, and look also know thyself. If, if you're the type of filmmaker that just wants to make films, you don't know anything about branding and marketing and you don't have that post post energy. That's what bonsai creative. That's what we do. That's why we exist. You can call us, have somebody do it. And we're affordable. And that's, that's the, you know, uh, it's, it's, the point is mm-hmm. you just can't not do it. Yeah. That's be done. What books would you recommend all filmmakers read, Linda? Okay. Glad you asked that. First of all, and this is a book you said you've read, mm-hmm. is a book called The Four Agreements. Now, this is not a film book per se, but it is a beautiful, beautiful platform for life and advice for life and easy to read. It's short and it's got four guiding principles. And believe me, if you incorporate those into your life, you will eliminate all drama. (laughs) Okay. That's what this book is about. Getting, getting toxic people out of your life, getting drama out of your life so that you're free to explore, you know, and be artistic and creative. Nothing blocks creativity worse than personal drama, mm-hmm. right? Yes. And, and it, it's a killer. And it also can make you depressed and stuff. And that's what we want joyous filmmakers that can just create. Yeah. So that's not a filmmaking book per se, but it will make you a better filmmaker. Then learn about production, Mm -hmm. the business side of it. This is one of my favorite books. It's called Film Production Management. And you can buy it on Amazon. And it really teaches you about 
producing, which is a skill that if you didn't go to film school, you probably don't know too much about when you're first starting out. You think all you got to do is buy a camera and, you know, yeah. point it <laughs> and stuff. When it comes to actually making movies, I love this book. It's called Film Directing, Cinematic Motion, A Workshop for Staging Scenes. Hmm. And it's a beautiful book. Beautiful cover, too. About, yes, about how how to compose and, uh, you know, it's very, very excellent. So that's about shooting. And then this is one of my favorites. It's called The Eye is Quicker. And this is about editing. Editing is really where the movie is made. Yeah. As long as you've captured the footage you need, the movie really gets made in editing. And you can hand the footage to 10 different editors and you will have 10 different movies. That is the truth. Yeah. So, really important to learn how to edit well um these days i'll give you a quick hint no slow builds no i don't care if it's a serious drama no slow builds okay people most people are watching on avon and if you aren't engaged immediately they're going to just turn the channel they got nothing to lose you must engage your audience early. So first plot point on page three really, or minute three. Really, really important. Yeah, or plot turnaround, um, I should say. So so those, those are my my four favorite books for filmmakers. That is quite right? a list. I think that's <laughs> tremendous. Thank you so much. And I will see if producer Elise can add those books in the show notes so people can link out to them and get them off off Amazon. Um, what is the best yeah. piece of advice you've received in your career? Persistence. Mm. <laughs> you, you, you must persist and, and that you'll be tested on that throughout your filmmaking career. Just never quit. You have to just keep following your dream and, 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 and stick with it. And doesn't matter how long it takes. I didn't, I, okay. Do you remember who I gave you that start. advice by the way? Um, my dad. Love it. Love it. <laughs> I, I didn't start doing films till I was 40. I didn't get into, right. you know, doing, so it, it doesn't matter how old you are or when you start, but, but, but when you discover this is what you want to do, you have to stick with it and follow your dreams. It sounds, you know, like a silly saying, but you, you have to stick with it. So persistence is really, really important. And in practical terms, have a great poster. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay? You have to have a great poster. Your poster must be clickbait. It must have clear, bright, big image with really readable title art. Okay? No little people walking on the beach, you know? (laughs) Nobody's going to click on that. You have to have really great key art. And if you if you're not good at that, hire somebody. There's plenty of people out there that'll make you a great poster for 250 bucks or 500 bucks. Yeah. Or students. There's a lot of sourcing yeah. for you know, poster. Really good. Trailer critical. Same thing has to be fast. Cut, 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 cut. I don't even care if this movie's slow. Still have to cut, cut, yep. cut, cut. Has to be. It's you. You've got to again engage people and make them want to 
watch the movie. Those two, those, those, are, those two points, Linda, uh, I think is where filmmakers fail most often post key art and trailer isn't, isn't tight enough. Mm-hmm. What other mistakes? Well, maybe we take it a different direction. We say maybe creative and business, but, but what are the uh, biggest mistakes you're seeing indie filmmakers make today and, and how can they avoid them? Well, I think that especially people that didn't go to film school mm-hmm. that people feel like all you got to do is buy a good camera. Okay. And this also goes back to what you were talking about with your photographer friend, mm-hmm. right? It's not enough to have a good camera. I have seen some really terrible films shot on red and Alexa. And I'm not talking about that the story's bad. The story's good. The <laughs> acting's good. There's no lighting. Yeah. You must learn about lighting. They're dark, flat, and muddy looking, even though they're shot on a really, really expensive camera. You have to learn about lighting. Really, really critical. That's number one. Number two, audio. Nothing takes you out of a movie faster than bad audio. Mm. It's really, sound is really, really, really important. I'm assuming you've got a great script and a story and great acting, okay? Right. But those technical aspects of lighting and good sound are really important and get clean sound. Yeah. Because if the world has gotten very small, but there's still a lot of different languages. And if we're going to be able to sell your film to foreign territories, we have to have an M&E track. We got you got to have clean dialogue tracks separate from music and effects. Right. And the final piece of advice is make sure you license all your music. Mm. You must license your music. What's the, what's even better is get a friend to that you know that's a good musician to compose your score for you and you write a contract with him that you have all the rights to use it forever. Yeah. Then you're never going to have any problems. But I can't tell you, on our YouTube channel, we have terrible uh, issues with people who uh, have not properly licensed their film. Don't just get a festival license. Get a proper license for your, you know, for your yeah, one that the one that exists in perpetuity. That's that's uh, great advice. On the personal side, for you, if there was one person in film you'd like to be introduced to. Who would that be, and then what makes them special? Oh, probably my favorite would be, I think, at this point, David Fincher. Ooh. I love thrillers. Okay. That's kind of like my, you know, my uh, favorite genre personally. And um, I was fascinated by him because he said for years and years and years, I will never shoot on digital. I will always shoot on film. <laughs> After he made his first film on digital, he changed his mind. He said, I will never shoot on film. <laughs> and I appreciate that someone can 
pivot like that. Yeah. It's important yeah. to be able to not be so set in your ways that you cannot, you know, move forward, you know, because it's the people. I can't tell you how many friends I had that had post-production shops based on tape. You probably don't even remember tape. I remember tape. I remember tape. But it, it, we've had some people come on and talk about like cutting tape, cutting VCR tape when they were. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And they're, oh, no. You know, tape's always going to be around. Yeah. No. Nope. <laughs> you have you have to, again, stay stay up with what's going on in the world. Watch what's happening, especially what younger people are doing. Yeah. Yep, it's true. Um, I had an. Never think too old to learn because nobody's older than me. <laughs> I, no, I no. You can learn, Linda. You you look great. Oh. You look great, and uh, honestly, and you're so right about the look at the kids. I had an investor friend that told me one of the biggest secrets is just to go to the airport or go like like where there's a lot of people find someone that's a teenager or a kid, look over their shoulder and see what app they're playing with. See what app they're on. That's where you put your money. That's where you invest. That's where the future is. And you'll find out in advance before everybody else. And I think the same thing is true in, in creative innovation as well. You know, how is someone cutting a film now? How is someone getting the content they're getting? What role is AI playing right now in the ability to create a film or to create sound or to create dialogue? Yeah, it's all there around the corner. It's the Wild West all over again in the world of creation and, and film. You, you mentioned earlier the book, The Four Agreements, which I love, and, and how it will help you eliminate negative people from your life. But I am uh, curious and would love to hear your, your thoughts on times that you've been in a dark place in this business as, as one can get in any creative endeavor and how you got through it. I think that would be so valuable for this audience. Well, I think, um, when, when we lost the DVD deal on that InSync film, mm -hmm. uh, it was crushing and, and, and it, and the effects of that lasted for actually years for us to get past that. And it was very, very difficult um, to um, navigate, you know, and try and stay uh, positive yeah. in, in that period, you know, because my hopes were just so high and, and we already had like five more movies that we wanted to make. Right. right. Yeah. And they weren't small projects. They were big projects and we were so ambitious and we had so much, you know, that we wanted to do. And it just was like, wow, we just got crushed. <laughs> and, and right. that, that was a difficult time. How did you get through it? Michael and I actually have taken uh, to reading to each other from inspirational books, you know, when things get uh, hectic. And, and there have been several times when, you know, like platforms have, you know, kind of like dipped really bad and we wonder, oh, wow, 
Well, like when iTunes started to go down, we're like, gee, what are we going to do now? What, what are we going to replace that with? Things like that. But but we we have found that that there is so much great inspirational, you know, literature that we can read to each other. We've we've read to each other out loud from the Four Agreements. Wow. At times. And it's very powerful stuff because you forget it's so easy to get bogged down, you know, in negative thinking or taking something personal. Uh, we had a, a group of filmmakers that we thought were extremely loyal to us. Yeah. That we really put them on the map. And they decided they were going to go away and do something, you know, use someone else. And I was, I took that so personal, like, how could you do that? Right. <laughs> yeah. 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 And it took me a while to kind of come to terms with the fact that everyone's entitled to grow and, you know, get bigger. I mean, you know, they don't need to stay small. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they're allowed to grow and get big too. But, but I took it so personal when it happened that, you know, uh, uh, again, it's, you know, you have to go back to those basics of learning not to take everything so personally because you, you're you really in very little control of your what's going on around you. Yeah, 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 yeah. You can control your own attitude, right, and your own thoughts and stuff, but you can't change anyone else. You can't control anyone else, and, you, and sometimes it's hard to accept that. Yeah, it reminds me of the... Quote from Sean Lennon, John Lennon's son, one of his sons, which is life is mostly what you don't see. Yeah. And so there are things happening all the time that are going to affect your life that you have no control over. So you have to let that go. I think that's a great point. But at the same time, I will totally identify and agree with you. And the fact that like, it's really difficult not to take something personal when you put your personal on the line. You know, yeah. I've had, you know, I feel like I've had friends in the past that will watch your kid on Friday night and then Saturday night testify against you in court and say, it's oh. not personal. Uh, yeah. it just makes sense. And you're like, what? Uh, that's, that's when people say to me, it's, it's just business. Yeah. Yeah, that really bothers. Yeah, it can rub you the wrong way because it wasn't just business for for one of us, right. for one of us, right? But I love this idea of going back to foundational, which is kind of what you and Michael are doing when you read to each other from the Four Agreements and other books. There's a saying: a person doesn't need to be told; they need to be reminded. And yeah. I think it's really powerful. So for those listening, if you get in that dark spot, go back to that space, to that foundational first principles place where you were excited about creating, excited about film, get around those people and go back to that place that motivated you in the beginning and remind yourself of what that felt like. So with that, Linda, I, I, I have to say thank you once again for joining us here on the Make It podcast, the insights, the education, the tools, the tactics, the stories, they were all brilliant. Do you mind telling us where we can find you on social media, on the internet, or even see some of your work or find indie rights? I don't mind telling you at all. You can really read the most about us probably on our own website, which is IndieRights.com. That's pretty easy to remember. Uh, you can see a lot of our movies 
for free, but with ads, on Indie Rights Movies for Free. If you want to get a feel for the kind of, you know, movies that we we do or have, uh, you will also uh, find us on uh, Facebook. It's Indie Rights Movies at Indie Rights Movies, and on Instagram at Indie Rights Movies, uh, and on Twitter, it's just Indie Rights. No, it's Indie Rights Movies. Yeah, so at Indie Rights Movies is pretty much our handle everywhere. And uh, if you if you are just to put into Google Indie Rights in quotes, we take up about the first five pages. So there's no excuses <laughs> for not finding us if you have a film that needs distribution. You heard it here first, directly from Linda Nelson, CEO of Indie Rights. Now go do likewise. And Linda, we'll end on this you mentioned your love for travel and the importance of it. But one thing you left out is that you were an absolute food connoisseur. You are a food queen. So if we in this audience visit LA, tell us the one or two places we have to stop for the best food. Ooh, I would say uh, Mama Asteria, Ooh. which is on Melrose, which is kind of a high-end Italian, mm -hmm. which is um, really, really good, and kind of a bit of a fancy restaurant. If you're looking for uh, something a little more down-to-earth, I highly recommend uh, Cafe Angelino, which is on 3rd Street in West Hollywood near Robertson, and that is home-cooked Italian Oh, and it's the very first restaurant that Michael and I had dinner at, and we continue to go there. They know our name, and they know what we want when we go there, and and it's lovely. What are we ordering when we go to either of these places? Well, when I go to Angelino's, I get uh, they have a bow tie pasta with. Uh, mushrooms and peas and parmesan which i absolutely adore yes michael get, always gets a uh caesar salad with grilled chicken it's the best i mean he's tried that in every restaurant in la and that's that's his favorite place uh to get that there at um mama Asteria, Asteria mama they have their menu is constantly changing so they they always have all kinds of wonderful italian food so I, I like all that. Yeah, Italian's my oh, favorite yeah. too. It's my weak spot, Linda. And now I'm I hungry. also love French, but uh, you know we haven't really found the French restaurant that we like as much as the ones that we like in France when we go there. <laughs> French wine, Italian food—it doesn't get much better yeah. than that. And uh, like I said, uh, hungry now, so I'm gonna go take care of that. For those listening. If you don't know already, which you should, you can listen to all our podcasts wherever you listen to podcasts. If you want to learn more about branding and marketing your independent film, make sure you go to www.bonsai.film and you can learn everything you want to learn about me and my co-founder, Nick, and our company, as well as this very podcast. And Linda, I know I'm going to talk to you soon and I hope we stay in touch and can do a round two. Uh, and I'm going to look you up whenever I'm in L.A. Okay, and thank you, Chris, so much. I'm, I'm thrilled to be able to share on your podcast, and thank you so much for inviting me. Pleasure's all mine. Talk soon. Bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to The Make It Podcast. 
To find more information about this week's topics, including links to relevant blog posts, projects, and indie creatives, please visit our website at www.banzai.film. If you haven't already, you can subscribe to our podcast on YouTube, Spotify, or Apple Podcasts by searching for Make It Bonsai Creative, and the show will pop right up. You can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at underscore Bonsai Creative, and on Facebook and LinkedIn by searching for Make It Bonsai Creative. In addition, you can provide feedback to us via email at contact at bonsai.film. You now have the opportunity to support the production of this podcast. If you love Make It and are a true fan of what we're trying to accomplish in the indie film community, please visit www.bonsai.film forward slash donate. Donations start at only $5 monthly. And of course, if you're looking to take a big step toward your film's financial success, go to www.bonsai.film and click on services to explore a variety of branding and marketing packages and so much more. You have everything to gain. Until next time, be better, be creative, be engaged, and thank you for listening.